Welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. Let's begin where we can't escape. Let's begin with Logos. Now I would say that this openness, this being in the world, this referring to the world, to objects in the world, what I would like to call self-transcendence, this is disappearing as soon as you project a human being into a lower dimension than its own dimension. The point of the V goes up to the, to the nuclear explosion that created it. Uh, now, tell me this, Dr. Oppenheimer. Uh, do you ever become frightened at what you're finding out here in this area that can't be measured in either time or space? I, you see, that's a real point. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts. Open up your hearts to Athens and Jerusalem. The infants of our culture, united, independent, polarized, and even bloody. Athens, the cradle of wisdom and rationality. Jerusalem, the cradle of faith and spirituality. In this podcast, we look at reunion. Could reason be more than modern secular skepticism? And could spirituality be more than belief? So welcome to another episode of the Athens and Jerusalem podcast. Last time we ended uh, discussing the possibilities still exist in religious thinking according to a scientific worldview. What, what kind of possibility exists? And we we tried to say something some more about what consciousness is. And uh, yeah, Stephen, you have some thoughts on on uh, the possibilities of religious thinking. There was a, a statement by one of the by one of the Taoists. I think it was Zhuangzi who talks about the nature of words, and he says that a. a and we may have quoted this on a previous on a previous episode, uh, but that a fish net exists to catch a fish, and once you've caught the fish, you can forget the net. Uh, a rabbit snare exists to catch the rabbit. Once you've caught the rabbit, you can forget the snare. And words exist to catch meanings, and once you've caught the meanings, you can forget the words. But I think it kind of begs the question as to to what extent. Are words capable of capturing all of the meanings that there are to express? And I think this relates to the whole scientific project and what what has become over the last few centuries of this gradual paring away or slicing away of whole swaths of the human experience and sort of consigning them to the dustbin of superstition or non-science because now we have this perfect way of describing the world, which is the scientific way of describing the world. And there was a book by um, uh, Philip Goff called uh, Galileo's Error, where he talks about the what what the, the let's say the the founding assumption that allowed the scientific method to proceed as far as it has over the last few centuries and to accomplish what it has. And you can think of it as a kind of divide and conquer strategy in the sense that we have 
as human experience an enormous amount of inputs, enormous amount of, of ways of experiencing the world. And the genius of Galileo and the and the initiators of the of the scientific method was that they decided to limit that infinite variety of experience to that which can be measurable and quantified. And to bracket for a moment all the other stuff, you know, the the, the hard problems of of uh, of consciousness that can't be quantified. You know, the qualitative nature of things was kind of bracketed out for the sake of creating a, a mathematical language that could be shared between people that could, from which we could create these objective questions and objective answers, from which we could evolve this community of scientists that build upon the knowledge that came before. And the result is obviously incredible, what we've able to to uh, to accomplish in terms of an understanding of the world, something has been lost along the way, and this was a great point in uh, in in this book, and we've almost forgotten that we've lost it, because not everything can be quantified. You know, equations describe an amazing range of phenomena, but at the very beginning, it was a kind of deal that was made, a, a, a kind of epistemological deal that was made to divide and conquer. And that, let's just take the, the, the piece of reality that we can quantify and, and go forward with that. And people, I think, nowadays are becoming more and more aware of what was left out of that, you know, uh, of that initial uh, uh, sort of step a few centuries ago, the whole qualitative experience of things. And I think a similar thing happens with regard to, to language itself. You know, just as a, a choice of a mathematical formalism decides what can be described about the universe, but also leaves out all sorts of facets of human experience, language itself, which is, of course, of much greater antiquity, I mean, it goes back to the dawn of human consciousness, has made that same compromise with reality. It is because what we experience is so much vaster than the power of individual words to capture. Just as what we experience is so much vaster than what than than the power of, of of equations to capture, you know, both of them flatten reality for the sake of a certain kind of efficiency. Um, but language is so ubiquitous that we we never stop and think about the inherent limitations of it to capture all the dimensions of, of what we experience. Um, they you know the you say a, a picture is worth a thousand words, you know, which which is such a profound statement because it reminds us that there may be other modes of expression that can, you know, circumvent or you know or go around that limitation of language and open up different dimensions of the experience to be able to be uh, to be expressed. I, I remember when I was um, uh, away for you know twelve years, lived overseas with my family, uh, and I came back to my old community. And I still remember the evening I came back and we were welcomed back and, you know, and they said, so how was it? What was the experience like? And I just remember at that moment the incredible poverty of language to be able to describe that experience that I had. I mean, I had a few minutes to say what I was going to say before the conversation went on to some other topic. Literally a few dozen words I had to choose to try to capture this incredible experience that I had just had. It's like, you know, as kids, we all do these connected dots. 
you know, where you connect the numbers and then in the end, a picture kind of emerges. It's like the words of the language are these dots. And I had this incredible, you know, tapestry of experience. And I had like a few dozen dots that I had to choose to try to recreate that tapestry to show it to someone else. And in my head, I had the whole tapestry. Everyone else only has the dots. What are the chances that with those dots, they can actually fill in the whole experience of, of the tapestry? It's, it's absolutely impossible. And so this, so it forces us to think of, are there other modes of, you know, uh, other kinds of languages that have more dots, you know, that can, that can bring in more of that, of, of the uh, more modes of the, of the human experience. And of course, the visual arts are one, pictures are one, music is one. It would be great to have a musician actually on our, our podcast to talk about mu music as an alternative sort of language to describe and maybe unveil aspects of human consciousness that can't be captured by this sort of pointillistic uh, and very sparse uh, method of, of using words to express things. Um, and this is where we come back to language itself to be able to express more because the, the usual words of language, you know, like, like science uses equations, where a word corresponds to an element of reality gets us a certain distance, but there's other modes of language itself that open up broader aspects of human experience. I'm thinking of poetry, where poetry somehow magically, almost counterintuitively, a word because it takes it can take on a symbolic meaning and mean many things at once, whereas in normal language, that's not the case. In poetry, with a few lines, you could actually recreate a much more filled-in picture of an experience than you can with those same few words in in normal language. And so it kind of it 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 kind it invites us to imagine that there are ways of capturing dimensions of consciousness which which go beyond uh, everyday language. And then that brings us to what to the Jerusalem piece of of Athens and Jerusalem, because if we're talking about you know. Athens being the, you know, the logical side, you know, the, the side that is able to objectify the world and capture it, you know, using equations or using, uh, or using formalistic logic, then the Jerusalem side is, uh, is characterized by this different kind of use of language, which is more like poetry. Um, we call it, some of us call it sacred scripture, words that, that have, seem to have an external meaning, seem to be saying, this is what happened, or this is what's going on in some realm that's invisible to us. But because the words are actually symbols for something else, like poetry, they're able to carry a sort of different charge. They're able to fill in the picture of consciousness in a different way than uh, than everyday words do. Could, it, so, could I just... Just a uh, few starting thoughts. Uh, yeah. I try to... You have said so much, but I, I, just some some comments on the on the last one about Athens and Jerusalem. Uh, it, I think it's important to 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 understand if, if we differ between a quantitative method or a, uh, to measure the world with with quantities and this discussion about uh, like a dark quality of matter of of uh, reality and the, the in in the old ancient and in in Athens with the philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. They were focusing on both the 
quality and the quantity of reality. Mm-hmm. So, so, so in in that way, the, 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 this this focus on methods is is more um, with uh, with the modern scientific revolution of of Galileo Galilei and and so on. So that's also that's an, one important thing to to understand that, um, and, and also to understand that, like like Plato, he says that um, we we can't express the meaning of the quality of life through words. Uh, mm-hmm. So we need to, and then, uh, and then he goes on and said that maybe we could use metaphors and and different mm-hmm. kind of allegories and so, like we have been discussing with with Ibn Rush, mm-hmm. and so that was one point. But I, I think one of the most important that you were talking about was um, this idea about uh, how our our consciousness is like a multimodal mind. Mm-hmm. I mean that that we that we we have much more in in our mind on or in our consciousness than just what we experience with words. Mm-hmm. But of course, and, and I think that's very important to the, the point, the last point that you say about language, that our language have the possibility to like capture the essence of reality in in a very sharp way in in mm. very special but but then we also have to remember that it's not pure logical like a poet a poetry is not like pure logical it is mm. it also very it, it brings something alive with the words and the rhythm and uh yeah so so it's 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 like an mm. aesthetic logical experience it's another mode of the use of language. Yeah, and the rhythm and the meter and the rhyme somehow are are key elements in allowing the language to sing in a way that normal language doesn't and, and is able to bring in, I think, another dimension uh, of experience, apart from the fact that words in, in poems are symbolic and, and often can be used to, to mean many different things. So there's all, all these sort of dimensions to poetry, which makes it so much, so much of a richer uh, mode of expression. Uh, I, 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 yeah, please, Cameron. No, I, I just, I mean, um, I'm also thinking back to uh, an analogy that I think Stephen used uh, way back uh, in one of our podcasts, and and uh, I'm, I'm thinking that that uh, all of these different languages are like maps of reality, aren't they? And now, mm-hmm. so a map obviously cannot capture the beauty of every stone and, and flower and tree that's there. It highlights certain things. And the, the interesting thing is that that uh, while it reduces uh, some of the, I would say, fullness and perfection of what we experience, but it also sort of draws our attention to something that should be or is thought to be essential. And of course, different maps highlight different kinds of things, right? You have a you have a map that shows you, I don't know, the difference of heights in the in the terrain, and there may be maps that show that there are any metals in the whatever. And uh, so I'm thinking of you know, like like we have these multiple maps, and and there's something about certain texts or certain language or certain words. I mean, this is 
whether whether you you know believe in anything metaphysical or not, but it's obvious that the words of wise people, whether they have been founders of religions or philosophers or you know whatever kind of great thinkers, have actually had just those words have somehow had a very profound influence on human minds. They have sort of like opened up something. They have resonated in some way that has led to the transformation of individuals, just those words. And and, and one could say that, that those words have had, had a creative power. Words have sort of brought into being something that didn't exist just by the power of their utterance so to say and um, and i think that's that's to me that's a very fascinating power in language and and words mm -hmm. just a, a friend of me uh, he did his phd on transformative reading experience and he he uh, left some notes on the library asking have you have you had this experience that some books have changed your life please call me and then he got called by a lot of people, and mm -hmm. the, uh, every every one of them had had like one book that really changed their life. And then he uh, he he started to they started to talk about the book, and after the conversation on the phone, he read the book, and then he met them and wrote about the his experience of meeting them. It's like a phenomenological PhD, but it it, it tells um, something that you, Cameron, tried. Uh, you you talked about some words, but it could also be like one book, and it, and I think that one of the importance is is often like a novel or a yeah, just a normal what was in belle lettre. What 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 is what, what do you say in in um in in English? How do you... uh, literature? Hi, okay. literature? Hi, okay, yeah. yeah, beautiful literature. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, the the French explanation is like a is something that is very beautiful, mm -hmm. and, and this connection to aesthetic, I think it's it's very important that uh, when you read a book and it transforms you is. It's it's like a combination of the logic of the book, the meaning, the true meaning of the book, and the beauty, and how you become part of a reality that really ch it changes you. And I, I often say that we have to be be aware that we can we have to be careful with certain books because they can change our lives. Mm. So. <laughs> On this uh, power of of words, there is in um, in in physics, there was a famous statement attributed to Eugene Wigner, where he refers to what he calls the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics as a way of describing the world, um, and um, and it's an astonishing thing when you think about how a few equations can be so powerful in describing so many facets of the uh, of the of the quantifiable world there's no reason for us to imagine to, to suppose in advance that what we can think of off on our own with pencil and paper and write down certain mathematical expressions and relationships 
should so precisely correspond to reality. And this unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics has been taken to be um, real evidence for for the, the, the supposition or the proposition that we're not inventing reality, we're discovering reality. That reality is out there and we're, we're seeing bits and pieces of it, you know, the points, the dots, and, and, we're, we're able, and the fact that we're able to connect the dots uh, and, and make further predictions that are powerful and accurate seems to be evidence that there's something out there beyond this world that we experience. And similarly, I think, with the power of language, the power of words, the power of poetry, the power of, of you know, great ideas, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a similar thing. There's a kind of unreasonable effectiveness to the power of words. Why should it be the case that someone who wrote something 2,000 years ago, and I read it, and it echoes in my head with such power and force, you know? The words of the book of Job, where God speaks out of the whirlwind. I mean, it shakes the air when you read it. It's something like incredibly powerful. Why should that be the case? And, and it's not just me, but it's many other people who also feel, and not everybody, because different minds work in different ways. But the fact that there are certain words that sort of retain a kind of mystical potency is, I think, a parallel, it's kind of a parallel case to Wigner's unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics, that there's there's something about the power of words that indicates that there is something to reality beyond the the physical makeup of the of the human. I think we like when when we talk about mathematics at school, for instance, I, I'm often I, I wonder why doesn't pupil in a larger degree experience the beauty or the the the, the mm -hmm. mystery of mathematics H how is it possible that yeah all those uh, knowledge we have got it uh, seems to me to have immense implications for for education when it, because if we think of education as just transmission of knowledge as a, as a teacher that's conveying information to students who are then tested on that information is which is the model of education as 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 I understand it at least as as I was raised uh in the you know in the in the US um and that would be so different from a model of education in which in which the words and the equations you know are seen not as you know information to convey but as symbols of something behind you know as these almost talismanic um elements of creation that awaken that enliven that guide us to some place that otherwise we couldn't have gone um, and if we think of the educational process as that you know it's a sub it, yeah like like the subway map you know it's words and it's facts and it's you know and it's textbooks and so forth but the point is not to to press information into our head that, that we can that we can then you know vomit out onto the page you know during the midterm and the final but rather it's a it's it's a subway map that invites us to explore terrain that others before us have explored and that 
it invites us to push farther into that terrain, into regions that other people have never explored. It's it's like it's it's subway tracks in our own consciousness or in whoever's consciousness, and I I think that's yeah it's beautiful, sir. Uh, and uh, I think that's we 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 could. I mean, try to 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 bring this to under for the kids to understand that if we are to to learn multiplication, then we we, we really we bring you into an abstract world that does exist, but it's you can't touch it, you can't, but it's it's still part of us and it's still part of reality, because that's a way of. There's a path that is in reality. Hmm. It's it's interesting. Uh, I'm sure you remember how Habermas in earlier days uh, he used to talk about this interest of knowledge. I mean, like what knowledge is for, so to say. And and uh, uh, I, I think somehow the way that everything is taught at school is modeled around the kind of what what Habermas would call the interest of knowledge in science, which is to be able to essentially put things under your microscope or to sort of bring the world under your control. And uh, that, of course, uh, goes directly against the idea of experiencing the awe and beauty and majesty of existence. And mm -hmm. I think that we need to somehow get this sort of technological or in that sense, natural science, how uh, 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 say, orientation to knowledge, which is to have knowledge in order to be able to control your environment, which of course has served us very well. I mean, that's why we have we have like now uh, this possibility of having an electronic connection, or we can fly from one country to another. So it's, it's, or, it's not, or a shower, or a shower, whatever. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are millions of wonderful things that brought us, but it it has the danger of not giving us the possibility of experiencing the beauty of a feeling of being a small creature at all at the beauty and majesty of existence. And I think that is something that uh, that is really what helps us to develop as human beings. And once once we have that, then we can use those uh, artifacts and, 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 and those sort of instruments and tools that science and technology provide us in a good and wise way. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we become consumed by those and then they they turn sometimes even against us because we have lost that higher perspective our, our mastery of the physical world the material world seems to have led to a kind of disenchantment with it at the same time we have this incredible power but the sort of the color has been drained out of it because all we're looking at are the black and white facts of it is there any way for us to find a re-enchantment of the world you know to, to see the the cosmos in living cover in living color what when I think back on my early childhood watching Carl Sagan's Cosmos, what profoundly affected me and still has a lifelong effect on me is how Carl Sagan 
convey to us this total awe and enchantment with the physical universe. He somehow kept the enchantment, even though he was looking at the universe only as a physical system. And that's an interesting problem because it seems as though most people can't do that. You know, perhaps being able to be enchanted by looking at pictures of galaxies and stars as I am is not something that everyone is going to is ever everyone is going to be able to do to the same degree. Um, maybe the the path to to reenchantment of the world is not going to be the same for everybody. Maybe for some they are going to find it in a deeper appreciation of the physical intricacy of the laws of the universe. And for others, they're going to find that re-enchantment in seeing um, overarching purpose behind uh, things like human life and human civilization, um, a purpose which seems to be invisible when you look at it through this through this material lens. I, I, I agree, and because I, I think we all have like an aesthetic or and an ethic and uh, a logical and all these kind of dimensions are part of our consciousness and is part of our way of thinking mm. so and uh, when when you talk about enchantment and and i i've started to think about phenomenology phenomenology mm. uh, because that that that, that philosophical um position was really a, a fight against uh, natural science and also against a language that had become like a like blurred through history it had blurred the meaning of reality and the meaning of life so they 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 tried to start like with with a fresh <laughs> way of thinking and to to start without being uh, blurred by the common way of using the words or mm -hmm. the common way of using uh, scientific uh, um, explanations mm -hmm. and to start again all over and mm -hmm. and, and, and of course there was uh, a, lo a, a lot of religious thinkers that also started to use phenomenology like to start to think about God or to to, to something divine um all over again but but to start from 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 real life what is what could this be mm -hmm. um and i i think it it was a really pretty big tradition but then uh, nowadays especially in in teacher education or religious studies and teacher education it has lost a lot of ground and nowadays is everything is more or less just social science and everything should they, they try to to bring back like more natural science methods uh, just to explain how people actually are, are presenting their religiosity today instead of really believing that this is something that does exist and that we are able to actually try to ex to capture some of or uh, unfold some of the essence of what these phenomena really is 
Beautiful. And that, that doesn't this sort of take us really back to the, the essence of our theme, Athens and Jerusalem, and the fact that they're not um, contradictory or mutually exclusive. And and the, I, I, I'm sure that I've mentioned this before, but I, I'm always fascinated by this ancient Greek concept of homology. And the fact that uh, I, I think essentially what it might mean in this context of our, our current conversation is that the physical universe is not something opposite to what might be termed the spiritual or uh, existential uh, or philosophical dimension, but it's actually um, a an embodiment of it. So by by looking at mathematics or, or, or by by looking at the beauty and order and complexity of the physical universe, you're actually uh, experiencing and understanding and learning something about the metaphysical nature of reality. And, and so in that sense, the physical universe could be seen as a wonderful classroom with perfect audiovisual equipment where we can learn something about things that essentially are not maybe visible to the eye. But they would be, it would be impossible for us in this world to to come to, a, to any kind of comprehension of those things if we didn't have these sort of representations in the material world. So mm -hmm. I think that's, and I think that's where the power of we talked about the power of poetry and metaphors. I think it's in that connection that that power lies. That when someone says that you know your love is like a flame, uh, it it gives us a meaning which actually goes far beyond the experience of, of a material flame. It opens up a door to something deeper. One of the profoundest statements of uh, homology on the cosmic level, I think, was by the, by the poet Rumi, where he said, Dost thou consider thyself a puny form when within thee the universe is folded? It's a Rumi didn't start that didn't originate that idea. It goes all the way back at least to the to the mythical or hermetic writings. Um, but somehow there is a, a persistent idea throughout the history of thought that there's a, some some mystical correspondence between our consciousness and the cosmos writ large, and that somehow by learning about the one, we can learn something about the other which helps to really dissolve this imaginary boundary between Athens and Jerusalem, you know, between head and heart, between the, you know, the so-called objective world with all of its mathematical facts and its quantifiable realities and the very unobjective, very unquantifiable realm of human consciousness and, and human experience. Yeah. And that's, I mean, since we are also in this podcast uh, relating these ideas to the world of education and schools, I mean, I think it would be a fantastic and transformative revolution in the kind of education schools could provide if that, if if this connection was made visible to students at all levels. I mean, from preschool to university, and it would both I think provide us with completely different uh, possibilities of of flourishing as human beings, but also our understanding and sense of what kind of a society or world we want to uh, create would become very different.
So and maybe going back to our, our starting point, the maybe words are a limited vehicle for, for doing that, which we want to accomplish in the educational realm. But then that begs the question, well, what is the medium? Um, I mean, one that jumps out at me is, is video. Um, that's what everyone is consuming now. You know, my daughters are on, you know, YouTube more hours of the day than I'm comfortable to admit. Um, and they're consuming content, a uh, 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 very low level content. But the potential of that medium is absolutely immense. I mean, I think of just a few, a few second videos that I've seen here and there that have left deep impressions on me. You know, the cosmic zoom video, which you can see there are different versions of it that zoom in from, you know, they start at the human level, they zoom out to the, you know, to the uh, level of the clusters of galaxies and then zoom back into the human and then zoom all the way back into the level of quarks. Um, and that gives you a sense of the connectedness and wholeness of things that you wouldn't get from a year of, of studying science. And this is just a couple minute video, you know, of a, a video that I've seen of the videos that are uh, superb animations of the working inner workings of the cell and the inner machinery of the DNA as a molecule and and how the base pairs uh, in the DNA molecule end up being translated into proteins that then fold and and have you know certain specific chemical functions as well as many other kinds of mechanisms even more uh, complicated than that and these can be conveyed in just one or two minute video so much beyond the power of words to uh, to convey and that's just a couple of scientific ideas i mean beyond that of course there's music and, and art and other other sorts of modes uh, of expression that it seems to me ought, ought to be more and more the, the the bread and butter of the educational experience for for kids from a young age and maybe this is uh, this is goes beyond the, the boundaries of, of of this podcast but i can imagine in the next few years and few decades this is going to become more and more of a reality as artificial intelligence becomes more and more a component of and guides the educational process for students on an individual, very tailored basis. You know, certain certain kids may respond more to the written word, others may respond more to music, others may respond more to, to images. Um, and I can imagine the um, artificial intelligence developing to the point where it can zero in on what is it that's gonna turn on the student? What is it that's gonna awaken their curiosity about things that's gonna engage them? Um, and uh, and the mode of of the conveying of these ideas will be will be tailored to that. Yeah, it's. It, I think you know this uh, the so-called language turn in philosophy has uh, its influence on the educational system. I think has been absolutely an overemphasis in words, and and from a purely educational point of view. Um, I think anybody who has worked with, at schools or, you know, teaching, one knows that people can learn to use words in the right way, in the right context, without really understanding what those words mean. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a sense, you can even teach parents mm -hmm. to use words uh, in, in, in mm -hmm. the right way. Uh, but if you ask somebody, uh, you know, for instance, I, I, used, I always used to do this thing with my students, uh, to ask them whether they believed in democracy. And of course, all of them did. And then I would ask them like, so what is democracy? And almost nobody could explain it. But if you were 
if you had to draw a picture of democracy, now that would show whether you really have understood something essentially about democracy or not. And so I think that that pictures, um, and I think pictures and thereby imagination uh, in the deepest sense of the word are something that that sort of touch those deeper levels of our humanity and human consciousness even more profoundly than words. And I think those words that touch our consciousness or, or, or stimulate it most deeply are actually words that are used to bring about picture or to create pictures uh, to them. I, I think one of the one of the problem in 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 the school system is that we have um, we are we are focusing too much on outcomes or learning outcomes or whatever we call it competence outcomes. So the the problem is that uh, these. Um, how to say it, uh, these qualities of life that we are discussing is not something we could measure or be sure that uh, the students actually will have through the education. We, I think that what we can do as teachers is like bringing experience, like a learning experience uh, into the classroom, trying to give them some of our own experience of how we we, we have uh, felt that something is of uh, importance of in our life and 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 then we could and of course we can listen to other people that have also have different kind of experience and then we could try to st stimulate in the, those direction also like you said uh, Stephen, that we we are not we are not uh, uh, focusing on the same aesthetic experiences mm -hmm. and and I think that's that's would be that would be, but of course then we 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 wouldn't be sure. We we can't say for sure that what we are actually bringing into the school or into the pupils at school. But I think we we, we have to focus more in that direction if we if mm -hmm. we want to have a a living school, a, a school that actually means what school did mean. Because you know, when I, I talked about uh, these words have changed their meaning, and and the school is one of those in the in the in the Greek etymological uh, meaning of the words, it's like free space or spare time. Uh, and nowadays, if I ask my students or pupils, they they would say that school is like something that's forced on you. Mm -hmm. So it's it it's in somehow it has become its own opposite meaning. That's, that's, that was a very fascinating statement. And 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 I wonder whether I mean since we started with this concept of consciousness, uh, I mean you, you're completely right. I mean, or I agree with you completely that schools are into into the business of communicating measurable knowledge now. Is that the same or different? And in, in what way does that connect with, uh, if we could say that education would be about broadening and deepening our consciousness? Is that the same thing as being able to uh, 
uh, reproduce uh, mathematical formulae or names of capital cities or whatever it is, uh, grammatical rules. What 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 would be what would be the development of human consciousness? What would that mean as an educational orientation or an educational goal? I think that's a very good question. I and I think that we when we when we try to express the purpose of our school system, I think we should have that question in in our mind. So maybe that could be like an end of this conversation. I'm not sure if we I, I really hope that uh, those listeners, those who have listened to us, have—I think we have given them some ideas what consciousness is, and also what it could be, and all those different dimensions or multimodal subways that are part of our consciousness. So, um, yeah. So, thank you for this time. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to Athens and Jerusalem, created by Cameron Namdar, Stephen Phelps, and Knut Ovese. Nora Julist broadcasts voice and technical support. Music is pieces of Edvard Grieg's morning mood. The voices in the intro are Victor Frankel, interview with Robert Oppenheimer, and Pope John Paul II. Thank you for listening, and please check out another episode.